Well, good morning. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once penned these words. Cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to chance. No blind fate rules the world. God hath purposes, and those purposes are fulfilled. God hath plans, and those plans are wise, and never can be dislocated. Do you believe that? Who or what, if anything, is in charge? Every human being has an answer to that question. Now, the answers vary. Some will say, yeah, it's blind luck or chance. Some will say, well, it's the great political powers. They are the ones ruling the world. Some will say it's the extremely wealthy. Some might say it's Allah or some spiritual force like Brahman in in Hinduism. Some will even say that they are in charge. I'm in charge. I rule my own world. Who's in charge? I agree with Spurgeon. Because I believe that the Bible is the revealed word of the one true and living God. I believe that the triune God of the Bible is in control. He is sovereign. God's sovereignty is seen throughout the scripture. It's seen from Genesis to Revelation. It's expressed or it's implied all the way through. When I say that God is sovereign, what I mean is that he, is, he has the absolute right to do all Things according to his good pleasure. God rules over creation. He is in control. He knows all. He planned all. And he will accomplish all that he has planned. God's never going to have a moment where he says, I wish I'd gotten that done. Or, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. He's never had a moment like that. He never will. God explained his sovereignty this way to the prophet Isaiah. He said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I could spend the rest of the morning reading verses like that one because they're all over the pages of Scripture. But I'm going to take us to the book of Daniel this morning. So if you brought your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Daniel. If you've got an electronic device that has the Bible on it, um, tune, tune it in to the book of Daniel. We're going to look at chapter 1 specifically, and we'll glance at some of the other chapters as well. My goal this morning is to exalt the sovereignty of God in all things. In all things. And I hope that that will will comfort you this morning. I also want to briefly highlight the ability of Daniel to to navigate living in a pagan culture. He's able to remain faithful to God, he and his friends. They're able to remain winsome in their culture. And I hope that challenges you to do the same. And by winsomeness, I just mean they are able to continually uh, attract Thought and reflection, um, they're, they're able to, to draw people in towards them and their God. Simply speaking, the book of Daniel is divided up into two sections. You've got the first six chapters, those are narrative, those are stories, pretty classic stories that we would hear in children's church. The last six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are visionary or apocalyptic. It's a lot of prediction about what was going to happen in the future. And of course, those two sections are connected to each other as well. 
The book of Daniel actually picks up where 2 Kings ends. The book of Daniel shows us Israel in exile. They are in exile because they have sinned against the Lord. The book of Daniel, it has those, those popular stories that we all know about some faithful young men who survived the lion's den and the fiery furnace. But the book is ultimately about God. It's about the sovereignty of God over all of history, past, present, and future. God's sovereignty is, is an ocean. I'm just going to scoop up a little cupful this morning so that we can look at it. There's no way that we could examine all of God's sovereignty or even comprehend it. But even with this just little scoop from Daniel this morning, I think that we can, we can worship the Lord and rest in His sovereignty. Rest that He uh, always has been in control and He always will be in control. Now for some, the sovereignty of God can be unsettling. I'm not going to try and tackle all of the questions that might arise when you think about the sovereignty of God. There are plenty of questions. But ultimately, I believe that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is very good news. It's a sure foundation that I rest my life on. Which would you rather worship? A God who doesn't know the future and can't really control what's going on, can't really rule over creation, or a God who is sovereign over everything, knows all that will happen, and is guiding all of history towards His glory and our good as His children. For me, the answer is plain. Again, Charles Spurgeon said this, Some men hate the doctrine of divine sovereignty, but those who are called by God love it, for they feel if it had not been for sovereignty, they never would have been saved. And I agree with that. So we're going to look at Daniel 1. I'm actually going to read the whole chapter. It'll take us a minute or two, but I think it's a good thing to read. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able as we read God's Word. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. And he has given it to us so that we can know him and love him and rest in him. May he bless the reading of his word and use it in our life today. You may be seated. I want to show you five truths that are in Daniel chapter 1. And they continue throughout the book. The first one is that God is sovereign over all leaders and nations. We see this in verse 2. World leaders and powerful nations are not autonomous. They do not determine their own destiny. God has not been sitting in heaven on his throne watching history as a spectator who has no say in the outcome. Instead, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Daniel says it this way in chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Psalm 2 says that God laughs at the rulers of this age who think that they can thwart his plan. God is sovereign over all leaders and nations. He always has been and he always will be. At this point in history, God gave one nation into the hands of another. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was given over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar's success was ultimately brought about by God for his divine purposes. Now this could be troubling because it means that God used an evil nation to purify his people. But God had warned the nation of Israel that he would do this if they forgot him and sinned against him. And so they did and so he does. Yet even in this discipline, God had not forgotten his loving promise. Ultimately, God had redemptive purposes in the midst of tragedy and exile. And he was carrying them out even in the midst of of the exile. In the book of Daniel, we see him preserving a remnant so that the plan of salvation would be achieved. As I look at the chaos in our world today, I just I rest in God's sovereignty. Just as God allowed rulers in the past to rise up and, and speak against him and, and attempt to wear out his children, so he is allowing it today. World news seems 
so chaotic, evil, hopeless. But Satan's work and the pride and bloodlust of sinful man, that's not beyond God's hand. There's no shock or panic in heaven. Any ruler could be reduced to nothing at the word of the Lord. God could sweep them away with his little toe if he so chooses. And in God's time, justice and salvation will come together in a way that will leave us all in worship on our faces. That's exactly what happened at the cross when Herod and Pilate carried out the predestined plan of God. God is sovereign over all leaders and nation, and their acts of evil and injustice can't overcome what he is doing. The cross is proof of that. He can take evil actions and bring about salvation. The second thing we see in Daniel is that God is sovereign over all relationships. We see that in verse 9. It says that God gave Daniel and his friends favor and compassion. Now, I believe Daniel and his friends carried themselves in a, in a winsome way because they trusted in the sovereignty of God. They heeded the word from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter, chapter 29, he, he said, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be carried away. And when that happens, seek the welfare of the city where God puts you. And, and so Daniel and his friends do that. And the reason they can seek the welfare of Babylon as exiles is because they trusted in God's sovereign hand that he had put them there for such a time. But God was also giving them favor because he was preserving his remnant. God was sovereign over the favor they received. And he was sovereign over the persecution that they faced. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves maliciously accused by Nebuchadnezzar's officials. They ended up being thrown into a fiery furnace. But God miraculously spares them for his glory, for the remnant, and as a witness to his unstoppable power. Similarly, Daniel finds himself in a lion's den in chapter 6 because King Darius' men hated him. Again, God miraculously spares Daniel. In both cases, God was sovereign over the persecution and the danger. May this truth remind us that, that when we find favor from the world, that's from the Lord. And when we experience hate, God is still in control either way. And he can use whatever response to carry on his purposes. Now, I want to take a few moments to reflect on Daniel and his friends. They remain faithful to God in a pagan culture. There are times when they acquiesce to certain things. They're given new names that reflect a foreign God. Imagine your name being changed to reflect Allah. They learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, which we know is not completely wholesome. And yet they draw lines in the sand when they feel that they must. They will not eat the food that will defile them. They will not bow to a statue in worship. They will not pray to anyone but the Lord. And they joyfully risk their lives when they take these stands. But God is sovereign over all of this. And at times, those in, in this pagan culture, they're grieved by their very own actions. Or they're awed by the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or they're just drawn to their winsome way 
of living. When Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, King Darius couldn't eat or sleep. Why? Because Daniel's life was so attractive and compelling that it grieved him to have Daniel thrown in the lion's den. And God was sovereign even here because others didn't find Daniel's life attractive or compelling. They hated him and that's why they got him thrown in there. God had purposes in both responses to Daniel's life. For the most part, Christianity in America has enjoyed over 300 years of acceptance and has usually had a seat at the table, whatever the table was. Now that's an oversimplification in one sense, but broadly speaking, it's a true statement. But it appears that times are changing. In many spheres of American life, Christians are being removed from the table or no longer being invited to the table. We're being told to stay over there You're out of touch. What do we do? What do we do? I think the answer is that we are to act righteously and rest in the sovereignty of God. I think the answer is that we are to to seek to be winsome to this pagan culture without, without compromising essentials or allowing the culture to silence us. We can't do either one of those things. To be sure, we have to draw lines in the sand and say, I can't go beyond that. But I believe we can draw those lines in the sand without anger, without hate. I believe that if we're going to remain winsome in our culture, we must guard against a frustrated anger towards unbelievers acting and thinking like unbelievers. We've got to guard against that. We can't walk around with a get-off-my-lawn attitude, and yet we can't compromise what God's Word says. We we have to be willing to say as God's child, I can't do that, I, I can't believe that, I can't support that. But we can't be hateful as we draw those lines in the sand either. Now, knowing how to remain winsome and faithful, that's going to take much prayer. I believe Daniel is a good example of prayerful winsomeness. And we'll do well to, to learn from him. But I'd encourage you to, to study the book. Now, let me show you one example in Daniel. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is in a rage. All the wise men are to be killed because they can't tell him what he dreamed or what it means. And so he just says, all right, everybody dies. And uh, Daniel gets wind of that. He's on the list with his friends. They're going to die as well. Verse 13, uh, they're being sought uh, that they might be killed. And look at how Daniel handles the situation when his head is on the table. He says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Then he buys a little bit of time. He goes to his house and he prays. Daniel finds a way to combine prudence and prayer, discretion and devotion. He sought to be winsome. He sought mercy from God. May we do the same thing. May we do the same thing. May we answer with prudence and then fall on our knees in prayer and ask for God's help. The third thing we see is that God is sovereign over our abilities and we've got to be good stewards of how he's wired us. We see this in verse 17 and verse 19. It says that God gave Daniel and his friends learning and skill. 
God gave Daniel and his friends learning and skill. It's somewhat related to what I was just saying, but, but I think it needs to be said in this way as well. Daniel and his friends sought to be good stewards with the package that God had given them, their minds and their skills. Uh, they, they wanted to be good stewards of the way he had, he had made them. But we shouldn't admire these guys for their academic prowess and cultural savvy. We should praise God who gave them these abilities. It's not about Daniel and, and his buddies. It's about God and what he did. And we should seek God and, and ask him for similar abilities in our own day, in our own age, that we would be skillful and wise and understanding. Daniel and his friends were, were found to be 10 times better than all the others in matters of wisdom and understanding. Certainly God's hand was upon them, that's clear. And, and certainly, very clearly, they were seeking to be good stewards and they were seeking to maximize all of their gifts and abilities for God. May we do the same. As Christians, we, we should be hardworking people who maximize our potential as we seek God's favor and blessing. As students, we should be known as, as people who study hard and test honestly. As employees, we should be known as hardworking and honest. When the world sees a Christ follower who's lazy or sloppy, they're not drawn to Jesus. But if we work hard and God grants us success, let's be quick to give God the credit so that others might be drawn to him. Fourth, we see that God is sovereign over our insight. God gave Daniel supernatural insight. We see that in verse 17. And he was able to interpret dreams and visions. God gave this supernatural insight to Daniel for his glory, for, for, for God's glory, that it could be known by Daniel, that it could be known by Nebuchadnezzar, that it could be known by you and by me. And there's a sense in which Daniel's his insight was very unique. He was predicting the future. He was, he was telling people what they dreamed before uh, they told him. Uh, he was able to interpret those dreams. We haven't experienced that. It's unique supernatural insight. But there's another sense in which Daniel's supernatural insight was lacking or incomplete. And there's a sense in which our supernatural insight is greater than Daniel's because we have the complete Word of God. And because we stand on the other side of the cross. Daniel was on this side of it. We stand on that side of it. And we can see what God is doing. We know what is coming. And we, we know how it all ends. And those of us who believe should thank God for this insight. God opened our blind eyes and, and he softened our hard hearts so that we could see it and believe it. Supernatural insight comes from him. We who believe, we can look at our world, we can watch the news, we can see all that is taking place and we have some supernatural insight into all of that. But let this truth humble us. It isn't anything we perceived or attained in our own abilities. God has given it to us. Ephesians 2, 5 says that we were dead in our sins. God made us alive. We were saved by grace. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God brought light into our hearts so that we could know and believe and see. Daniel knew this, and he, 
He was quick to make it known. He told Nebuchadnezzar that, that God is the one who provides revelation. And again, I think humility will feed our winsomeness. It will, it will draw people to keep watching and looking. But pride and arrogance, it will block that. Finally, we see God is sovereign over all our lives over every moment, over every detail. We see this throughout the book. We see this throughout the Bible. We see that he can deliver us from certain death. God was sovereign over their appearance and their health in chapter one. I don't think 10 days was enough to make everything look that drastically different. I think it was God working in the midst of that. God gave Daniel the ability to know Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Lives were saved. God spared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the furnace in chapter 3. God humbles and humiliates Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. He strips everything from him in a moment with a word. God ends Belshazzar's reign, kills him in chapter 5. God saves Daniel from the lion's den in chapter 6. Chapter 7 through 12, Daniel is proclaiming what is going to happen in the future. And as we look back, we see that those things did happen. We know this is an incredibly old book, and yet he was predicting things before they actually took place. How did he do that? Because God is the author of everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And he revealed it. God is sovereign over all of life. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from our Father. The hairs of our head are numbered. Our days are numbered. He is sovereign. Consider some of, some of the sovereign truths from God in, in Psalm 147. It says, he, he determines the number of the stars and gives them all their names. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives the beasts their food. He gives snow and ice. Go home, read Job 38 and 39, and be stunned by the sovereign hand of God over everything. Every lightning bolt that's ever danced across the sky, he was sovereign over it. It went exactly where he wanted it to go. Every angel stands ready to do the will of God, and the will of God will not be thwarted. No demon will ever defeat our Lord and this is good news, isn't it? It means that, that we who believe are safe in his hands, even when, when the world is raging against us, when the world insists that we're out of touch. It means that nothing goes on in a single cell in our body apart from God's sovereign plan. And though there are certainly times when the fires are raging or the lions are surrounding us, let us remember that he can save us from certain death. Indeed, we cannot die until our appointed time. Have you ever had one of those moments where you thought, yep, I should be dead now, but you're not? It's the sovereign hand of God. But when death comes, and it will, heaven is what greets us. Not a bad deal. Heaven will not have hospitals. We won't need tissues to dry our tears. There'll be no pain. Worship will fill the air every day for all eternity. 
Reflecting on the sovereignty of God, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. Daniel prophesied that an everlasting kingdom was coming through the will and hands of our sovereign God, an everlasting kingdom. And it came, it came through the cross of Christ. And I'm gonna say a little bit more about that in just a moment as we reflect on communion. But let me just go ahead and invite those that are gonna be serving to come on forward right now. Just kind of have a seat up here at the front. For the next few moments, I think it would be good for us to just spend a few moments uh, in quiet reflection and prayer. The sovereignty of God doesn't discourage prayer. It actually encourages it. And I want us to just spend a few moments with our heads bowed before the Lord. I'm going to provide a little bit of guidance for us as we do this. So let's pray. First, just praise God for his sovereignty. Confess your sin and rest in his forgiveness. I'll take a moment to pray for our country and for our world and its leaders. Ask God to fulfill his purposes, to sustain his people, and to save the lost. Now ask God to fill this church, to fill us with wisdom, prudence and prayer, discretion and devotion. Ask him to help us shine brightly for him in a winsome way in the high country. Ask him for favor. God, we ask for your favor in the places that we work. Help us to shine brightly for you. We ask for favor on the campus of Appalachian State. Help us to, to shine brightly for you. Help us to shine brightly at Watauga High. Give us favor. And if that is not in your plan at this time, then give us strength so that we can endure and give us joy in you. And finally, I just want to remind you this morning that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God. So whatever's on your heart this morning, bring it before our sovereign God.
Father, we rest in your hands. And in the powerful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Our church's doctrinal statement says this about communion. It says, as a church, we believe the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which we as gathered believers, we eat bread, signifying Christ's body given for his people. We drink the cup of the Lord, signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of the Lord, and, and we thus we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when we eat and drink in a, in a worthy manner, we partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually. And that by faith, we're nourished with the benefits he obtained through his death. And so we can grow in grace. Christ's broken body and his shed blood was part of God's sovereign plan. In Acts 2, Peter was preaching and he said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Acts 4.27-28 says that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, carried out the sovereign plan of God for the salvation of all who repent and believe. The cross is our hope. It's our salvation. It saves us from sin. The cross is also our strong and stable foundation in a very unstable world. It reminds us that God is in control. He can't be overcome by evil. Instead, he can take evil and bring it about for salvation and sanctification. That's what he did at the cross. So as we eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, be reminded that you're saved from your sin because of, because of Christ's work, but also rest, rest in that this morning. He's sovereign over world events. He's sovereign over how people respond to us. He's sovereign over all the details of our life.